Welcome back to the Community Online Podcast. This week, we're joined by Community Pastor Ted Canaris as we continue the series, What Do Christians Really Believe? Remember, you can always find us on Sundays streaming live at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. One of the most unique sporting events in the world actually didn't begin as a sporting event at all. Each year, riders and their dogs race more than 1,000 miles for several days through the seemingly unsurvivable frozen wilderness of Alaska from Anchorage in the south all the way up to Nome in the north. And they do this for the infamous Iditarod dog sled race. But as remarkable as this race is, it's actually much more than just a dangerous scenic route for some crazy dog lovers. The genesis of the Iditarod is even more remarkable than the race itself. In 1925, hundreds of children in Nome, Alaska, had been exposed to a deadly bacterial infection called diphtheria. This was a serious, widespread outbreak, and the closest vaccinations to combat the disease were a thousand miles away in Anchorage. Now, keep in mind, this was January in Alaska. Nome was literally snow-locked, and the only way in or out was by dog sled, and the children were running out of time. Now, in order to get the vaccines to Nome quickly, the community organized teams of riders known as mushers and their dogs to be sort of strategically placed along the path to carry the vaccinations in a giant frozen relay race. So with passion and intensity, the mushers carried the life-saving serum all the way across the Alaskan wilderness, arriving in Nome in only 127 hours, a record that still stands today. More than 150 dogs and 20 mushers were involved in this heroic effort, an effort that became known as the Great Race of Mercy. And by combining the right medicine with radical effort, hundreds of lives were saved. Now, while the Iditarod had an amazing origin story, today it's just another sporting event. The teams race a similar path but the motivation is completely different. They still tie sleds behind dogs, but they're not racing to save lives anymore. Now the purpose is more about individual glory than it is communal flourishing. And I I know it might sound odd to some of you, but, but as I reflect on this story, I can't help but think about the church. Yes, we have fewer dogs. Yes, we gather in temperature controlled environments. However, the reality is, We were meant to be in all hands on deck, self-sacrificing, life-saving, soul-restoring community of Jesus that's living out the kingdom way of Jesus so that more people might find their way back to God. But I worry that sometimes we can actually forget the purpose of all of this activity and we just start running a race for personal fulfillment, making what we're doing here about our own desires, our own dreams, instead of the greater kingdom good. Now, while there's no longer a need to run diphtheria medicine to Nome, as a church, we can't afford to have that kind of mission drift. Our mission is as urgent today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that, that is why we're doing this series about what we believe as a church community. It is so important that we keep our hearts and our minds fixed on this bigger story so that we don't lose our way or forget 
that we're actually on a life-saving mission. Now, if you've been with us for the first two weeks of this series, you'll recall that what we believe is a true story about a king and his kingdom community. So far, we've talked about how that story starts with a God who is love. He's actually a community of oneness. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This God who is love created a world that was good, and he created people to join in his community of love. And in the beginning, everything was perfect. God's kingdom was being lived on earth. And there's a biblical word for this perfection. It's called shalom. And it means universal flourishing, wholeness, perfect peace. But then a villain entered the story. The villain is sin. Sin fractured that perfect community between God and people. Sin fractured shalom. And really the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's life-saving and soul-restoring mission, a mission that has now been passed on to us as the church. But in order to understand who we're called to be and what we're called to do, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. This chapter in the true story of the king and his kingdom starts in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. Here we find Abram and his wife, Sarai, living in Abram's parents and extended family. Now, in our context, we expect adults, whatever age that is now, to move out of their parents' basement and to get a job. In our culture, independence is like a hallmark of maturity. But that wasn't the case in the ancient Near East. An extended family lived together, moved together, made choices together. They depended on one another for everything. The cultural values of Abram's family were very different from ours. And that difference makes what happens next incredibly surprising. God tells Abram to leave. He says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God calls Abram to leave his father's household. This was a massive deal in the ancient world. Back then, family was your safety net, it was your social network, your security, your insurance, and it was your retirement. And not only is Abram being called to leave his existing family, but other than his wife, Abram doesn't even have a family of his own. There's no kids, no family support structure. And to make things even more difficult, God doesn't even tell them where they're going. I mean, this this must have felt like an invitation to disappear from the face of the earth. But God does issue some promises to Abraham in the midst of this daunting call, sort of tipping his hand just slightly on, on where this story is going. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not only is God promising to restore what Abram is leaving behind, his family, his security, his belonging, but he's also promising to extend a blessing through Abram's family to all people on earth. And it's in these promises that we start to get a sense of what God is up to here. God is on a rescue mission. Despite all of our self-centered and shalom-shattering actions that we call sin, 
God still wants a relationship with his people. In fact, every part of God's great rescue story involves his desire to establish his kingdom community here on earth. As author Dallas Willard puts it, the aim of God in history is the formation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. You see, it's through God's relationship with Abram, who would come to be known as Abraham, that the people of Israel are established as God's people. God makes a covenant with them in unbreakable commitment. They will be his people and he will be their God. And on top of all of that, the promise to them is that this community of people would be blessed so that they can be a blessing to all people. This marks the beginning of God's great rescue mission. What Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the Garden of Eden, be in relationship with God and to represent God to the world, God now entrusts that to the people of Israel. He starts his great rescue mission by establishing a community of people to be his people. Now, if we fast forward in the story of Israel, generations have come and gone, and Israel has grown into a large community, a nation. They've endured war and famine, internal strife and and resettlement. And at the part of the story that I want to turn to next, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And it's at this point in the story that God raises up a man named Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity. As God leads them out of Egypt, he issues them an invitation to follow his ways. See, not only does God desire to be in relationship with his community of people, he wants them to flourish. He wants them to flourish by following him in his ways, the ways of his kingdom. And it's through Moses that God gives the Israelites what becomes known as the law. And it's God's instructions for how we as humans can flourish. But the most famous part of this law being the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and they include instructions like, don't have any other gods before the one true God. Remember and observe a day of rest, Sabbath. Don't murder, don't steal. These are really descriptions of how God's people can thrive within his kingdom community. They're instructions for how to honor God and how to flourish as individuals and as a community. And this is really good news for the Israelites. The instructions that God gave his people weren't like any other religion of their time. God's commands were not just arbitrary rules to follow or or hoops to jump through to somehow like prove your devotion to God. No, like I said, his commands were meant to lead his people to flourishing. They're guidelines for the development of a full and thriving life for a full and thriving community that they were intended to live in from the very beginning. God's straightforward instructions are like instructions for how to restore God's intended shalom, the shalom that had been destroyed by human sin. One author puts it this way, for God's purpose, as we have seen, was not to invent a production line for righteous individuals, but to create a new community of people who in their social life would embody those qualities of righteousness, peace, justice, and love that reflects God's own character and were God's original purpose for humanity. I just love that. 
He's not creating a religion of rules. He's giving instructions on how to live out and embody his original purposes for humanity. Righteousness, peace, justice, love. I mean, these are the things that we all really long for, right? And remember, God, who had already made a permanent and binding covenant with Israel as his people. And so as a result, we can be certain that the commands that he gives them through the law, it wasn't about earning good standing with God. They already had it. The law was all about learning how to flourish. But there was one big problem. Israel couldn't even wait for Moses to bring the Ten Commandments down from the mountain before they messed things up again. They actually joined together and started to worship another God. They responded to God's faithfulness and God's love with betrayal. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see this cycle repeat itself over and over and over again. God longing to establish Israel as his kingdom community and Israel's failure to honor that and to follow him. In fact, if you fast forward many generations, about 600 years, you come to another turning point in this story. Instead of following God as their king, and instead of following him and establishing themselves as his kingdom community, Israel decides to take matters into their own hands. They come up with a rescue plan of their own. In 1 Samuel 8, the people come to their leader, a prophet named Samuel, and they say this, Give us a king, a king to judge us like all the other nations have. See, they want someone to follow that they can see, that they can touch. So they ask for a human king in, in place of the divine. And the prophet Samuel, who was really like a spokesperson for God at the time, was not happy with the people's request. And so he went to God for guidance on how to handle it. And God tells Samuel this, do everything they say to you. The Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. God feels rejected. But this response reveals something that has always been consistent about his character. God never forces himself or his kingdom on anyone. He lets Israel have what they wanted, even though he warns them about the inevitable, painful outcome. And from here, the kingdom community of God slowly erodes through a cyclical pattern of fractured relationships and fractured peace and fractured shalom. Broken king after broken king after broken king after broken kingdom after broken kingdom after broken kingdom. This is really the pattern of the rest of the Old Testament. And at times it can seem like this rescue plan has just sort of fizzled out, maybe even reached its limits. But what the story of Israel really reveals is the need for a perfect king a perfect king to come and to break the cycle of sin and death once and for all, a perfect king to come and to establish a forever kingdom community. And as the Old Testament ends, the story of God's great rescue plan isn't over. As it's often said, the night is always darkest before the dawn. The stage has been set for the great and perfect hero of this story to come to our aid. It can be easy when you hear a message like this to feel like it's just 
history about a group of people who, who lived a really long time ago or to feel an urge to just sort of fast forward to Jesus. And quite honestly, as our team worked on this message, we struggled with that urge too. But I believe it's so important for us to pause and to recognize that Israel's story is really our story. Understanding Israel's story in the Old Testament is sort of like understanding the story of your family of origin. It's really our spiritual family of origin. We can like chuckle or scoff at the ancient Israelites thinking, can you believe these folks didn't just learn their lesson? But you know what? Each of us, we're all made of that same flesh and blood, prone to that same cycle of sin and taking matters into our own hands. Last week, we took some time to confess and to repent of sin in our own life. And I wonder, how many of us got caught back up in that cycle of sin even this week? We all have a tendency to look for our own king. We either make ourselves into a king or our lives, or we look for a king that we can follow. Maybe it's a parent or a spouse, someone close to us that we pour our lives into trying to please them. Maybe it's a political party or a specific politician. We become convinced that they hold the key to a better life and we throw ourselves into their success. Now, I know I'm prone to this. I tend to put myself in the throne as the controller of my life all the time. I pursue what I wanna do. I put my priorities above the kingdom priorities or above what I believe God has called me to do or to be or to be about in this world. We're all prone to repeating the same cycle that we see Israel stuck in. We're rejecting our true king and seeking to establish our own little kingdoms. And when we do this, not only are we missing out on all that God desires for his kingdom community, we also miss the mark on living out our purpose to bless the world. I think it's time for us to really unseat these false kings to unseat these false kings that we've allowed to rule in our lives and to return to the one true king. And so here's what I want us to do. I want to invite you to join me in taking a moment right now to return to the one true king. Together, let's take a few moments to identify these false kings that we've allowed to rule in our lives. Maybe you've placed yourself on the throne. Perhaps you're ruled solely by your own thoughts, opinions, and desires. Maybe you've let work or, or a hobby rule your life. Maybe there's a particular relationship that you've made king. Or maybe your ruler is success or comfort or wealth or pleasure. Go ahead and just in the stillness of this moment, get honest with God about the kings that you've allowed to reign in your life. And now, having identified those kings, we're gonna take some time to pray, asking the Lord to unseat those kings and to help us follow him as the one true king. And as a result, 
May we experience the flourishing life and soul He always intended for us. You can use your own words or you can use the prayer on the screen as a place to start. Take a moment right now to pray. Throughout all the centuries of the Israelites' history, God remained faithful. From generation to generation, to Abraham and his children and their children and their children, God remained faithful. And so we can have complete confidence that He'll continue to remain faithful to us as well. God refuses to give up on His dream for His kingdom community. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, to overcome the sin problem once and for all and to restore His kingdom. It's the greatest rescue story the world has ever known, and it's our story. Today, may we all live in the truth of that story, the story of our King and us, His kingdom community.